0: I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. I want to read verses 14 to 23 in your hearing as today we continue our summer sermon series entitled Rebuild. Nehemiah chapter 4, once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 4, I'll begin at verse 14. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were were rebuilding the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet, he stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, for our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. And neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. When last we saw Nehemiah, he was surrounded by opposition both externally and internally. The external conflict came from Sambal and the Samaritans to the north, Tobiah to the east, Geshem and the Arabs to the south, and the men of Ashdod or the Philistines to the west. They hurled words of ridicule, hoping to intimidate Nehemiah and the people of God from continuing their God sized task of rebuilding the wall, refortifying the city. But this spiritual warfare of opposition was not just external, it was also internal. It came from the most unlikely of sources, the men of Judah. The descendants of Judah were supposed to be individuals that were fearless fighters. They were supposed to be loyal leaders. Yet the men of Judah came and they said to Nehemiah, the strength of the workers, it's waning. It's giving out. There's so much rubble. I don't think we'll be able to finish the work and rebuild the wall." In response to the opposition, there was external and internal. It came from people not like Nehemiah and people just like Nehemiah. He responded to the opposition, whether it was external or internal, in the same way he prayed. He simply prayed. We came to the conclusion last Sunday that prayer is the only appropriate response to opposition. And when you and I pray, we implement practical action. Because it says that we prayed and we posted a guard to meet this threat. Friend, whenever you do God's work in God's way, rest assured that opposition will come over the horizon. You too will face spiritual warfare. Sometimes it will originate externally. Sometimes it will originate internally. Sometimes that opposition will come from you from the outside. Sometimes it might well up inside of you. Sometimes it may originate from people that are drastically different than you. Sometimes it may come from people that look just like you. But whether it's external or internal, you like Nehemiah, You respond in prayer. When we get tenacious about telling the gospel story, when we get passionate about pursuing the lost, when we get hungry for the holy God, when we establish boundaries of moral purity in our life, when we want to live in God's way by God's power as it's related to us in God's word, rest assured that opposition will come. And when you face spiritual warfare... Today I want you to hear three phrases of instruction. I think you can hear them from the lips of Nehemiah, but they apply not only to the people of his day, but I think they'll also be helpful to you and to me in this day. The first word of instruction is simply this, look up. When opposition comes at you, look up. Don't look down in despair. Don't look within for answers. Don't look around for a personality or a program. No, you look up. In verse 14, Nehemiah said to the people, Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. This Lord of the Bible is the Lord who is great and also, and fight. Fight for your faith, fight for your family. In verse 15, he said, The Lord heard and frustrated the plots of the enemy. Praise the Lord. When you look up to, the, to God, many times he intervenes and he frustrates the plots and ploys of the adversary. Now, I'm not saying that God always acts and re- reacts the way you want him to, but many times when we look up to him, he responds with favor and grace. So he frustrated the work of the enemy. Those people like Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem, And the men of Ashdod. Friend, whenever the devil throws fiery darts at you, look up. Whenever the enemy comes attacking you, look up. When you are tempted to compromise your faith, look up. When temptation seems to strike you on every horizon, look up. When you are discouraged because as you try your best to pursue holiness, it seems that people are attacking you left and right, look up. Look up in prayer. It's Psalm 121 where the psalmist asks the question, if I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? He not only asks a great question, but he answers it. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In that eight-verse psalm, we discover that the psalmist tells us that God watches over us. And that phrase, watch over, is listed no less than five times. It is God who watches over our coming and our going. It is God who watches over us, for he neither slumbers nor sleeps. It is God who watches over us, for he's always watching his people. So simply stated this, when you and I look up, we will find a Lord who is looking at us. He preempts our looking up when we look up we'll discover that this God of the Bible this triune God of grace and truth father son and spirit he is looking down upon us in second chronicles chapter 16 verse 9 the author simply tells us the eyes of the Lord range through the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him God is looking for you, friend. He is looking for you to look to him. He is looking for you so he can strengthen you in this very moment, regardless of what you're battling, regardless of what you're facing, the difficulty that maybe you know about, or perhaps it's the difficulty that's right around the bend. Regardless, God is looking upon you, asking for you to look upon him. So in these first couple of verses, it would seem to me that Nehemiah is telling the people of God, look up. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and fight for your family. Secondly, he tells them not only to look up, but he tells them to show up. Look with me in verse 16. In verse 16, from that day on, half my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah. Who were building the wall. And those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Nehemiah tells the people of God, I want you to show up. And when you show up, I want you to do two things I want you to build, and I want you to battle. I want you to show up, and I want you to build. And I want you to battle. It would seem that to me that um, as I read these verses, uh, there are a couple of observations. The first one is this, um, that Nehemiah would not be in favor of defunding the police. If you read that passage, it seems abundantly clear. Nehemiah is not in favor of defunding the police. The police officers, he says, were posted behind the men of Judah. They were there ready to serve and protect. I don't think Nehemiah would be in favor of defunding the police. Another observation is that this uh, right to bear arms is not just an American right. It would seem to be more fundamental to a human right Here in this story, in this episode of spiritual battle, spiritual warfare, it is here that the people of God are armed. They are armed. In one hand, they have a spade. In the other hand, they have a sword. They have the tool of building and they have the tool of battling. And I think that therein is an awesome picture of the church. The church is the people of God. In Nehemiah's day, the people of God were there to rebuild the wall and they were to battle against the enemy. In the very same way, the mission of God's church is at least twofold. The mission of God's church is to build and battle. We are called to build and to battle. The church is not only a construction site, but the church is also a military base. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a place where we are constantly under construction Every church needs to have that yellow tape surrounding it, right? That gaudy yellow tape that tells everybody, hey, this is a construction site. That's who we are as a people of God. We are constantly building God's kingdom. And at the same time, we are a military outpost. We are a training center. We are preparing people for battle. We're preparing them to defend the faith. We are building and we are battling. What a graphic picture in Nehemiah chapter 4. In the one hand... They have the spade, the shovel. In the other hand, they have the sword. They are ready to build the wall, and they're ready to battle against the enemy. That's our mission. We are called to witness and to work. We are called to declare and defend. We are called to speak and to stand. We are called to build and to battle In our context, uh, to build means that we introduce more people to our best friend, Jesus. We introduce more people to King Jesus. We tell more individuals, more and more with each passing day, let me tell you who Jesus is and what he's done for you. We do our very best to build the kingdom. We do our best to build one another up in love and good deeds. We are called to build. We are constantly in a building project. We are building up the faith family. We are building up the kingdom of God. We are building up each other as we introduce people to Jesus. But we also battle. In our context, what that means is that we battle to know the truth and defend the truth. We engage the enemy in our culture with the truth of the Bible, the gospel. That we take this truth which has so been ingrained in us that we now have a Christian worldview. And we take that Christian worldview into the marketplace. And every decision that we make, every feeling that we have, every word that we say, everything that we do is shaped through the prism of Christ and him crucified. Everything is seen through the lens of how would Jesus want me to live out his gospel in this, in this watching world. So we, we build and we battle. We introduce people to Jesus and we know the truth and defend the truth. And when we defend the truth, we stand flat-footed on God's word. We don't need to tiptoe around it. We don't need to be apologetic. We don't need to be bashful. Certainly don't need to be ashamed. But we stand flat-footed on God's word and we just tell people what the book says. You know, there's an idea that says that when you engage the culture, you've got to become like the culture. You've got to acquiesce. You've got to compromise. You've got to negotiate. Friends, that is not what the Church of Jesus Christ has ever done. We just stand flat-footed on the book and we tell the culture this is what the book says. And we say it in a kind way. We say it in a gracious way. But we must always remember our twofold mission, that we build and we battle. We build and we battle. Now, we ought not prioritize one to the exclusion of the other. There are some people, organizations, and churches that build to the neglect of battling. And those individuals, those organizations, those churches, they say things like this. We love Jesus. We love people. We don't do theology. It doesn't really matter what you believe. We just come together and we agree to disagree. We come together and we just do our best to make much of Jesus, and so we are Jesus people and we love the Lord, but we don't do theology. Friend, I appreciate the evangelistic fervor of those previous statements, but I do have a question. In fulfilling the Great Commission, once you introduce somebody to Jesus and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, what do you then teach them to observe? The Great Commission is clear. As you go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to observe, which by implication means obey, everything I have taught you. And surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. So when we baptize people, we teach them. What do we teach them? We teach them theology. We teach them doctrine. We teach them who God is and who we are. And all of it is rooted and based in God's holy word. So I appreciate the the fervent zeal of evangelism where we say we're just about Jesus. But we can't neglect theology. Individuals, organizations, churches... Get off-skew, they become liberal in one of two ways. Either they have bad theology, and bad theology always leads to liberalism. Or secondly, they ignore theology. And when theology is ignored, the end result is always liberalism. You don't accidentally become a conservative. You intentionally study the scripture, and you intentionally take it by faith, The selfish inertia of your soul and my soul is a bent towards liberalism. So if we don't talk about theology, if we don't discuss theology, if we don't teach the things of Christ, then the natural bent of our selfish wayward heart will lean towards liberalism. The truth of all of this came home to me several years ago. Jane Ellen and I were being interviewed by a search committee. Now, let me quickly say, this was in a galaxy far, far away. This was in a time of a long, long time ago. We were in a totally different state, um, and this uh, search committee came, and they took us to dinner, and over the dinner, we were following back and forth questions and answers as you normally do in a setting like that. Most of the questions were directed towards me. I was the candidate, but then... Someone turned towards Jane Ellen and asked the question, do you have any questions for us? She said, yes, I do. What is your expectation of a pastor's wife and how does your church view the Bible? They began to answer the first part of the question. They responded with a great deal of pleasantries, all the things you would expect them to say as far as their expectation of a pastor's wife. But as I was enjoying my entree, I realized they're not even touching the second part of that question. That observation did not escape someone else on the committee. For someone else on the committee spoke up and said, Hey guys, we've answered the first part of the question, but we have not even addressed the second part of Jane Allen's question. How does our church view the Bible? It's at that point that the committee began to fumble and stumble they began to try to put a few sentences together as, to, as far as what they believed about the Bible. And as they were uh, floundering around, uh, drowning in their own words, there was somebody else on the committee that wanted to rescue the conversation. So we spoke up and he simply looked at Jane Ellen and me and said, listen, uh, at our church, we just love Jesus. When it comes to theology, those are secondary issues And we have agreed to disagree on all of it. Friend, it was in that moment I nearly choked on my entree. And then I remember thinking to myself, Lord, I love my wife. And then the next thought was, I don't know what time this dinner is over, but the meeting is done. Because I knew, by, I knew that this was not a good fit. This was not; they would not be happy with me, and I would not be happy with them. Why? Because they were attempting to build to the neglect of battling. And while that's dangerous, the reverse is equally dangerous. There are some individuals, organizations, and churches that they emphasize battling to the neglect of building. There are some individuals and churches that they say, listen, we are so entrenched on who we are and what we believe that we will debate and discuss every iota of scripture and doctrine, and every issue of doctrine is a test of fellowship. So you have to believe exactly the way I believe, not just on some things, but on all things. And if you don't believe on everything that I believe in the very same way, then we cannot have fellowship one with the other. And there are some churches that are like that, and they Make every iota of doctrine and theology an issue of fellowship, not acknowledging that certainly throughout the ages, theologians have taught us and told us that there are primary issues of doctrine and there are secondary issues of doctrine. And we need to have the wisdom to know the difference. Let me give you a couple of examples. A primary issue of doctrine upon which we must stand and there cannot be debate is the sufficiency of Scripture. The inerrancy of the Bible. The Bible contains no errors. We also must be completely certain on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. You cannot earn your salvation. The salvation of God's gospel is built on his mercy, not our merit. There's no way we can earn salvation. There's no way we can maintain salvation. There's no way we can achieve salvation. No way we can upgrade our salvation by the good things that we do. No, these are issues of primary doctrine upon which the church cannot deviate. Oh, but there are also some secondary issues. Worship style the proper education for Christian parents towards their children. Public school, private school, homeschool. Even at some level, political party affiliation. I mean, at some level, those get into the weeds of some secondary issues. And we have to know the difference between the two. So that in 1960, Alan Redpath said, if the devil can keep, Christians in constant conflict without them capturing the souls of lost men and women, the devil has dealt a fatal blow. We have to be able to battle. We've got to know the truth of the gospel. We've got to defend it. And we've got to be able to defend it uh, in the marketplace Oh, but friend, at the same time, we've got to build the kingdom of God. There are some people, there are some organizations, there are some churches, and they emphasize the battling, and they have absolutely no evangelistic fervor. And the waters of baptism have not been stirred in their midst for far too long. So we ought not to emphasize building over battling. We ought not to prioritize battling over building. There's got to be a proper balance. This is the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 4. They are building the wall. They are battling with sword at their side. They have a spade and a sword, and they're ready to fight. They're ready to do the work that God's called them to do. But, my friends, there's something that's even more tragic than prioritizing one over the other. And that's by being ineffective in both. I contend this morning that in the American church, we have become ineffective in both building and battling. It's not that the American church necessarily emphasizes one over the other, we've become inept in building and battling. Let me try to explain it and defend it. We are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We are one of nearly 50,000 cooperating Baptist churches. Out Out of all of the evangelistic organizations in our country, maybe even in the world, there might not be one that's more focused on building than the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, throughout the years, the SBC has been an evangelistic engine. It has, been, it has been an organization that has said our desire, our goal is to win people to Jesus Christ. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, they need to hear the gospel. We need to take it to the nations and we can do more together than we can ever do apart. So let's pull our resources, pull our people, and together let's go after the nations. Let's go from every city, every town, every street, every highway, every state, every country, every ethnos, and let's tell them the good news of the gospel." So we've been focused on building, and yet, in this last year, from 2019 to 2020, the Southern Baptist Convention, which used to boast nearly 15 million members, lost 435,000 members in our 50,000 churches. Now, that doesn't even take into account the global pandemic. Because next year's numbers will reflect much of COVID 19. In one year's span, to lose 435,000 members from Southern Baptist churches signifies the largest single year drop in our 165 year history. There has never been a year like 2019 to 2020, never been a year. When we lost more individuals. If you go back just a few years and if you add from 2017 to today, we have a a, a net loss of 1.1 million Southern Baptists. Where we used to have 15 million on our rolls, now we have about 14 million on our rolls. And my question to you is what happens when we stop building well? What happens when we stop making evangelism a priority? What happens when we stop introducing people to Jesus? What happens when one of the greatest evangelistic mechanisms um, given to the church, especially the American church, here in the 20th and 21st century, what happens when we get off point? We stop building. Let me bring it home even a little bit closer. This year... Just a couple of months ago, we had an initiative called Who's Your One here at First Baptist Pelham. We ask each other to identify one person that we are close to who's not close to the Lord. We were asked to identify that person, place their name on a card, bring that card here to the front at the altar to pray for them, and to promise to pray for that person at least once a day every day for 30 days, and then to look for gospel opportunities, not just in the seven- eight-week period of the emphasis, but even, even beyond that, to look for opportunities to have gospel conversations you responded beautifully you gave over 250 cards that we nailed to a cross of wood on those 250 plus cards there were more than 300 names these were names of people that we know names of people that we love we cherish them we value them why because they're friends and their family members and their coworkers and their neighbors it's not just people that we don't know these are people we have relationships with and in that process, you might recall that I asked you to join me in prayer, asking the Father to stir the waters of baptism 65 times this year. Because I thought to myself, if we have a force of individuals, if we have a, a small army of people, we've identified over 300 names, if we're intentionally sharing the gospel with them, then surely 65 people will come to faith in Christ. I also got that number because as I look back over the recent history, Over the last couple of decades here at the church, we never even came close to 65 baptisms. Here we are standing on the very last Sunday of June. Can you believe it that 2021 is halfway over? That is shocking to me. I've been told that the older you get, the faster time flies. I'm beginning to believe it a little bit, even though I'm not that old. But I'm beginning to believe that a little bit because I cannot believe that we're already six months in. The year is halfway over. And we have a goal, a shared dream of stirring those waters of baptism 65 times. And to date, we've had eight baptisms. Eight. Now, let me quickly say, I praise the Lord for those eight souls that are redeemed. I praise the Lord for those eight people that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But eight in six months? I ask myself, Are we building well? Are we intentionally sharing the gospel with those friends and family members that we love and cherish? Are we sharing the gospel, not just with friends and family members, but even complete strangers, people that we meet in the grocery store at the gas station? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we building? And don't misunderstand me. I praise the Lord for those eight. But I pray that by the Spirit's power, that God will motivate you and me to share more. Regardless of how much you have been sharing, share more, become more intentional because we cannot afford to be ineffective in building the kingdom of God. We cannot afford to be ineffective in building up people, introducing them to Jesus. We cannot lose our evangelistic fervor and zeal for the gospel because we have people in a, the shadow of this steeple and they are dying without Christ. And you and I know that to die without Christ is to go to a real place called hell for all of eternity. And we don't want that for anybody. We cannot lose the fervor of evangelism. We must build well. What happens if you don't battle well? If we don't battle well, then the Christian worldview is not impressed upon the fabric of the marketplace. And I contend this morning that for the last 50 years in the American church, we have not done a good job Of battling. We have not done a good job of knowing the truth of the gospel and defending the truth of the gospel. We've become sheepish, we've become cowardly, we have tiptoed on the scripture. Instead of just standing up and saying what the book says and who God is and what he expects from you and from me and from all of us, we have to battle intentionally so that we raise our children and we give them a Christian worldview and then we send them out to make a difference on the campuses of their universities and their colleges. And then as they begin to marry and raise family, they build that family on the foundation of who God is and the truth of the gospel. And then in middle-aged life and senior adult life, we are shaping the minds and the hearts of men and women so that everything we think about, the decisions that we make, the things that we do, the things that we say, is all seen through the lens of Christ and him crucified. Let's be very crystal clear. The mission of the church is narrow. We are called to make disciples for a global impact. That's the narrow mission of the church. The mission of individual Christians is very broad. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it all in his name. That everything you do, everything I do, every decision that we make, everything that we think, every word that we say, every activity that we're engaged upon, everything we do is to glorify the Lord. So that I think that over the last five decades or so, we have systematically failed to infuse the Christian worldview into the marketplace. Because if we were successful, then we'd have overtly Christian doctors and lawyers and plumbers and teachers and politicians. I'm not picking on any profession. I'm just listing out some that come to mind that if we did our task, if we did our job in battling having the sword of the Spirit in our hand and the sword of the Spirit in our head and the sword of the Spirit in our heart, then we would have overt Christian businessmen and businesswomen. But you look around the culture and society and Christianity is shoved in the corner. It's almost as if you've got to check your Christian convictions at the door. When you come in to do the work of the marketplace. And friends, this should not be. A few moments ago I said, overt Christian. And I hope that some of you thought to yourself, "Uh, pastor, isn't that redundant? If you're a Christian, you ought to be an overt Christian. It ought to be obvious. Is there any other kind of Christian? And the answer is no. There's no other kind of Christian. There's no occasional Christian, convenient Christian, sheepish Christian, uh, backwards Christian. No, no there's only conveni- There's only um, those who are outrageously in love with Christ. We have to be overt Christians. And I think that when we do a good job of battling, that, that we produce disciples, men and women, who know the Lord and make him known. And, and every decision of life and faith and practice is seen through Christ. Let me just, uh, let me try to drill down a little bit deeper, and I, I'm not picking on politicians, so please don't go out thinking I'm picking on politicians, but let me just drill deeper in, in one area and, and, and show you how we have not successfully, systematically, infused the Christian worldview into society. Here in the state of Alabama, if there's ever a state in the Union that ought to have Christian ethics, it's this one. The state of Alabama is the most religious state in the Union. Uh, Mississippi is a close second, but I'm gonna claim Alabama as first, all right? So, Alabama is the most religious state in the Union, which means there are more Alabamians in church on any given Sunday than percentage wise than any other church or any other state in the 50 states of the United States of America. If there's ever a state where we elect politicians that should share a Christian worldview, it's here in the state of Alabama. Historically, Alabama has always been perceived as a culturally conservative state. And when it comes to issues of culture and society, Typically, historically, Alabama has been what you would say is more to the right or more conservative. In this past session, coming out of the city of Montgomery, there were these bills. One bill was the expansion of alcohol so that any alcohol can be directly shipped to any house of any citizen here in Alabama. It passed both houses. It was signed into law by the governor. Now, we can have a great conversation about the role of alcohol in the life of the believer, and we can have discussion about that, and that's a very healthy thing. But at the very least, can you agree with me about this? That if alcohol is, is accessible by being directly shipped to any and every home in the state of Alabama, doesn't it stand a reason? that underage drinking just might skyrocket in the months and years to come? Also, the state legislature just this uh, past session, they passed a medical marijuana bill, which made it legal for medical marijuana. So all types of shops and are going to pop up all over the state of Alabama. Now, once again, you and I can discuss and debate the pros and cons of medical marijuana and how, as Christians, we ought to interact with that. Now, you know by now we've been together for six years. I'm a pretty conservative dude. You can probably guess where I land when it comes to medical marijuana. Very hesitant, very leery of it. But even if you're not as leery as I am, that's okay. But history teaches us that any state, most states, where they pass medical marijuana, what is soon to follow? The legalization of recreational marijuana. I'll also say that this past session, there was a bill, a bill that was presented that would prohibit hormone blockers and prohibit sexual procedures changing the sexual or a sexual biology of minors. Now, this is something that we would be in favor of. We would be in favor of prohibiting hormone blockers. We'd be in favor of prohibiting those uh, sex surgeries of minors. We'd be in favor of that. In this great state of Alabama, that bill passed one house, but not the other, and it died. Most of the press focused on the expansive gambling bill. And that gambling bill in the state of Alabama, it failed. It did not fail because Alabama has a moral compass. It failed because of greed lock. and you heard me right, that's exactly what I meant. Greed lock, where the interest groups could not agree on the size of the slice of pie they would get from all of this money. that would come in from this extra tax on the poor. I'm sorry, from this extra expansive gambling bill. And so they, they, they couldn't agree on that. So because of greed lock, it did not pass. But just wait. They'll come together. And it'll be presented again. Why do I say all this? I am not striving to be political, I'm striving to be biblical. I am not preaching a political sermon, I'm preaching a biblical sermon. And I'm telling you that from Nehemiah chapter four, the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must maintain the proper balance of the two angles of mission and ministry where we build and we battle. We build up the kingdom of God, introduce people to Christ, and we battle for the hearts and minds of truth, and we defend the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot prioritize one or the other, and we certainly need not be ineffective in both, we ought to build and we better battle. So we better raise up people who can introduce individuals to Christ and defend the faith, stand flat-footed on the scripture. In other words, what Nehemiah would tell us is you, you've got to have the shovel in one hand, the spade, and you've got to have the sword in the other, even when you go to the get water. I don't think he means when you go to the beach and go to the water and recreate, but that's not a bad idea either. But even every place you go, even when you take a time out, even when you go on vacation, even when you go get water, when you go into the grocery store, everywhere you go, even when they went to go get water, they had the sword of the Spirit on their side. Because we got to build, we got to battle. So Nehemiah says, I want you to show up. Show up to build and to battle. You say, Pastor, I acknowledge all you're saying. How do we battle it? intentional, intentional, intentional effort. we got to be people of the book. we got to eat the scroll like God said to Isaiah or Ezekiel. We've got to devour God's word and we've got to think Christianly. It is hard enough to think. Can I get an amen? It is hard to think. It's even harder to think Christianly about every aspect of society. So Nehemiah says, I want you to show up. I want you to be intentional. I want you to build and I want you to battle. I said there are three phrases, not only look up and show up, but quickly and finally, third, I want you to listen up. Look with me at verse 18. It will only take a moment. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Oh, but the man who sounded the trumpet, he stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. We are wildly separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, for our God will fight for us. Nehemiah says, We don't have enough workers, we're spread out too far. We should be in eyesight of each other. We should be in earshot of each other. We should be shoulder to shoulder. But we don't want enough workers. Not enough laborers in the field. We're spread out. But when trouble comes, just listen up for the sound of the trumpet. And come to that area, rest assured that God will show up. And God will fight for us. So as you... Look up. As you show up, as you build and as you battle, I want you to listen up because you might hear the trumpet call of God. And when you hear the trumpet call of God, I want you to get happy. I want you to get excited because you know that when the trumpet call of God is sounded, that God is going to show up and do something miraculous. Friends, I can tell you, we don't have enough workers in the church. We're spread out thin. Not just in this church, but every church. I talk to other pastors, they all say the same thing. It's not just a COVID 19 thing. Even before the pandemic, people were talking about how we need more workers. You look all throughout the world in the church, and we need more workers. We're spread thin. But I can tell you this in every far reach of the planet, there are people waking up today to proclaim Jesus as Christ. It's in every state of the union, there are people that are gathering today in worship people in Central America and South America. There are people in Europe, people in Asia, the Pacific Rim, people on the plains of Africa, people in uh, Australia. There are people all over the place that are waking up today to worship the Lord. But we're spread thin. We're spread thin. So as we look up, as we show up, as we build and as we battle, I want you to listen up. This is not the only time that the Bible talks about a trumpet. I don't think I'm stretching the truth here. In fact, I think I'm standing on the authority of the scripture when I say that there's coming a day when the trumpet will sound. It is Paul who says that the Lord himself will descend with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised first, and that we who are still alive will be caught up, will be raptured, to meet them in the air, and together we will be with the Lord. Elsewhere, the apostle says that while it's true that all of us will not sleep, all of us will not die before the second coming of Christ, but some of us will still be awake, but all of us will be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet sound. It was Jesus who said in Matthew's gospel that the Son of Man will come He will come with the loud trumpet call of God. He will dispatch his angels. They will go to the four corners of the earth. They will gather the elect of God, those chosen before the very foundation of the world. And together we will be with God. And I don't know about you, but I was raised in a church and we used to sing. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. When the morning breaks eternal bright and fair. When the saved on earth are gathered over on the other shore. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. I don't know about you, but there's coming a day when Jesus will split the eastern sky. One day he will come and mount his white horse. One day he will descend. One day he'll be wearing a righteous robe, dipped in royal blood. One day he'll descend with tattooed on his thighs, king of kings and lord of lords. One day he'll come and separate sheep from goats. One day he will come and he will set up his kingdom both now and forevermore. One day he will declare to all the world of all the ages, he is Christ, he is Lord. One day people will acknowledge that every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't know about you, I don't want to wait for one day. I want this day to be able to declare, Jesus, you're my Christ. Jesus, you're my Lord. I know that one day you are calling me to look up for salvation is drawing near. One day you will come and there will be no more building and battling. One day you will come and we will listen up to the trumpet sound of God. And Lord, we declare that you are the Christ. Amen. So we are the people of God. Until Jesus comes, we've got to look up. Until Jesus comes, we've got to show up to build and to battle until Jesus comes while we work. We've got to listen up because there's coming a day when God the Father will look to God the Son and say, go get your church. And Gabriel will lick his lips. He'll toot his own horn. And the trumpet call of God will sound. And we will be with the Lord forever. That which we know by faith, we shall see by sight. What a day, what a glorious day that will be. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. If there's someone here who doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today is the day of salvation. Lord, please open up hearts and minds. Help us to build well, to introduce people to the real Jesus. Father, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. Lord, if there's somebody who needs to come and pray at the altar, if the altar is open, help us to do that. Lord, if you're drawing somebody to join this church, let it happen today. Father, help us. Help us to be the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.